Hello and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden. And hey, if you want to, you can find us on social media at Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod on Instagram, we'll pop up. And at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. Find us there. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Hey, let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know if you think our ideas are stupid or if you think that we're really cool and we're like the smartest people. And by we, I mean me because I'm, you know, I'm really smart. Anyways, the point is, hey, hit us up. We'd love to talk to people. And so, you know, hey, there you go. You can also find me on Twitter uh, under at Austin Glidden, I guess uh, you would say. And uh, that's pretty cool. You can also find me on Letterboxd under Austin Glidden. So find me on there. Hit hit me up. Follow whatever you want to do. We'll we'll hang out. So today we have a few things. Um, I got a screener for the film The Affair from funny enough 2019. It just came out in the U.S. last Friday. Its international title is called The Glass Room, and. Uh, so I'm going to be doing a solo review of that here in a few moments. And then after that review, we're going to talk to Lou Simone. She's a uh, horror filmmaker. She basically does horror films and psychological thrillers. And, uh, you know, she's she's an interesting, she's interesting folk. All right. She's interesting folk. Uh, she was uh, she was fun to talk to. She's very sweet. And she hit us up and she's like, hey, I'd love to be on the show. And we were like, sure. And then she sent us the movie and we watched it. And then, you know, we talked to her about her life. And it's pretty cool. You should check it out. And uh, it was a pretty fun time. So just for the sake of, you know, staying in time like we have the past couple of episodes, I'm going to go ahead and move forward. Let's go ahead and get into my review of The Affair. I go there in my dreams. Everything just as it was. And it's the strangest thing. You are there, always, waiting for me. Dear God, I miss you. I've only been married five minutes. And look at me, I'm like a whale. No, I've never seen you more beautiful. Well, you do make it look terribly easy. Can I touch it? If you really want to. Please don't be angry. I would hate to spoil this for you. Victor and I, we play our roles. But I'm alone. And so is he. He's thinking of her. And I think of you. He doesn't deserve you. I know. But the children, they do. This is how we live. An entire country doing what it must. Lisa, we're both married to Jews. Aren't you scared? I know how much you mean to each other. You're taking her away. You can't stay. into the future, but the end for the past. Because you know what you want. The house on the hill. Those bright, foolish days. The old friend who loved you too much. Perhaps in the end, you choose to forget. Or do you remember it still? 
This is her, one with the Jew husband. I longed for you, ached for you in every nerve and muscle. Can't I ride to my friends? Julius Sevchik's The Affair, also known by its better original title, The Glass Room, premiered in the Czech Republic on March 14th, 2019, but only made its way overseas last Friday, March 5th. Simply put, The Affair is based on the novel The Glass Room by Simon Maurer, and it's a love story about the relationship between two women set in an iconic modernist house in Czechoslovakia built by celebrity architect Ludwig Misvandero. The film takes place over decades, during which time the protagonists suffer through World War II, a pivotal era in the film, and are forced apart. The film, however, is more interested in the fictional aspects of its narrative. A lesbian tale of two lovers, which is nothing bad in and of itself, but it never feels fleshed out, to say the least. Hannah Alstrom and Carice Van Houten are the two stars of the film. And every scene that contains any kind of erotic intimacy between Liesl, played by Alstrom, and Hannah, played by Van Houten, you know, comes off as something closer to parody than authenticity. Further, they don't really share many moments outside those intimate situations. They do, of course, but not very often. This made their relationship really difficult to buy into. I never felt like they truly had a connection or shared any kind of true love, and I'm also unsure if this is the affair that the film references in its title, or if it's any number of the other affairs that take place in the film. Why the title was changed in the first place boggles my mind, too. The Glass Room is a just a better title in every way. It kind of gets at the heart of what the film is about, uh, or, or at least is trying to be about. And quite frankly, it's about the most interesting part in the film. However, it was changed to The Affair, and that is unfortunately a very forgettable title. Liesl and Hannah are the two protagonists leading us through the plot, but they're not real people in history. Though the glorious Villa Tugendhat was indeed owned by Victor and Liesl Tugendhat, the characters and their happenings, however, are not historical. Rather, they exist as plot devices to move the story forward. Now, I don't mind that they're not historically accurate representations. I really, really don't care. What I want is a great film. And if that means you take certain liberties, you know, within reason, that's great. Now, sometimes... It's important to stick to it because if you're doing something, for example, dealing with the Holocaust directly, or if you're doing something dealing with, you know, uh, racial justice in the past or or any kind of uh, a, a lot of uh, kind of his pivotal history in kind of the the human existence, right, that you can often lose historicity, as they call it. You can lose our understanding of history and the facts behind that history, but this film doesn't really suffer from that. It doesn't ultimately matter. It's trivial to the idea of historicity because it's a film about these two women uh, supposedly falling in love. But my point in all of this is I really don't care that the film is not dealing with the exact real people. By all means, make it more interesting. But here's the issue. The best character in the movie is the house, and more specifically, the glass room that exists in it. Liesl, Victor, which is Liesl's husband, played by Clace uh, Bang, Hannah, and the rest of the cast are placeholders to propel a narrative so underdeveloped and ultimately meaningless that they miss the house, 
which has a rich history that seems infinitely more interesting than what we are actually seeing in the affair. But all of this is not helped by the way the story unfolds. It is essentially revealed through letters written back and forth between Liesl and Hannah after Liesl and Victor, her husband, flee Czechoslovakia during the rise of the Nazi party because they are both German Jews. The visual storytelling is fairly obtuse and at times abstract. And honestly, it felt like it was trying to be a film by Terrence Malick, but made by someone who had never seen a Malick film, but rather was only told about them. Now, I've never been ashamed of being a huge Terrence Malick fan. Uh, Everything from Badlands up to The Tree of Life, and also A Hidden Place to a lesser degree. I'm a big fan of those. All the stuff in between, not a huge fan, but I haven't disliked, per se, any of his stuff, because I love the poetic nature of it. And despite some of his practices, like the uh, infamous treatment of uh, Adrian Brody on on the Thin Red Line, you can Google that and find out that story if you'd like. You know that that stuff sucks and that's horseshit. But my point is, you know, I love the poetic nature of that. I love the beautiful sweeping shots that you get in a Malick film with this gorgeous music. And, you know, this voiceover, and it's a very poetic voiceover, it's usually in whispers of very soft voices, and I'm a big fan because when I interpret those films, I get a lot out of them. Now, the problem with this film is it does what I just described. You have this gorgeous cinematography showing us these beautiful moving images and this music that makes you feel feelings, and, you know, it it, it moves and moves, and then you have this voiceover, which is essentially a reading of the letters that are shared between Liesl and Hannah. But those letters, ultimately, they just leave you wanting. They, You know, they don't really share enough that feels like it carries weight. It feels like those letters ultimately, again, are a plot device, and then they're just kind of left dry. And so, you know, that seemed like a perfect opportunity to tell us a bit more about maybe what the characters were feeling subtextually, hopefully, and, uh, you know, you know, sharing different things that we can't just see in that moment. For example, if Liesl, which this does kind of happen to a lesser degree, but if Liesl were to send Hannah a letter and Hannah's reading it, you can hear Liesl's voice sharing the letter to Hannah, and Liesl could be telling Hannah what is happening, where she and Victor are now, right? Um, and we, since we are with Hannah at that moment, we don't see Liesl, and the film does not jump around in that way. So, you know, it could tell us something special, but it, I found it just to be very, very lackluster. Um, and, and honestly, it's just to kind of go curveball here, the use of time in this film, we start in around you know the early 1930s or 20 maybe 1928, as early as that, and we go all the way into the 60s, I believe. So we're covering like decades of time, and you know there's never a moment where writer Andrew Shaw uh, helps us visualize and understand the movement of time. Now I am all about some abstract movie making, some non-linear even. Uh, This is chronological, but I mean, you know, jumping around, that's totally fine with me. Uh, And and I'm not an idiot. Like, I can follow time, all right? (laughs) But this film, it's not that I didn't follow it, but I just didn't get why we were jumping around so much because it seemed like there were whole chunks of time that ultimately accomplished nothing. They may show us one pivotal moment, but it could be done so much more effectively. But back to the storytelling as well, just in general, 
uh, time aside here, the one of the big issues with the affair when we're looking at storytelling is that there's no real weight given to any character, any moment in the film. So in my mind, having just seen it yesterday, a lot of things kind of just blur together in my brain because I don't really know it wasn't really dissected in a way where you could easily follow these situations. I mean, yes, I'm following it. I'm watching it. I know what's happening, but there wasn't much meaning behind it to give it any kind of memorable weight. And so I think one of the big issues was a kind of a focus issue, but also kind of giving uh, more of a palpable conflict to what was going on, because there's an inerrant conflict to the situations that happen in the film, but I don't feel them through Lysel or through Hana, our two protagonists, and that is something that I have a pretty big issue with. But now that I've complained a lot about you know the overall writing and storytelling, I do want to pull out a few pros here to the film. The cinematography and set design is absolutely gorgeous in the affair. Despite my criticisms up to now, this film looks incredible, I think. It carried the film for me because I love looking at beautiful images that move you know, across my eyeballs. I absolutely love it. My ears were very happy, too, because the music in the film is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Orchestral, simple, but with melodies and chord combinations that emote a great deal of melancholy. This is absolutely great. And I gotta again, I gotta give it up to cinematographer Martin Sturba. Hopefully I pronounced that name correctly. Uh, but Martin Sturba did an absolutely excellent job at executing beautiful, beautiful visuals here. The color of the film looks great. Uh, the the uh, contrast, the everything about it, man. I love the way this movie looks and sounds. Really, really fantastic. And despite the misdirection, uh, you know, I think the performances are quite good here, especially Van Houten as Hannah. She was so captivating every time she was on the screen. Now, if you don't know who Van Houten is, uh, she was in Game of Thrones, and she played the Red Lady, I believe is what they called her. Um, I think she hung out with Stannis. I believe I have these names. I've seen the whole series, but I, I'm probably forgetting names. I think I got that right, though. But, man, she's fantastic, I think, in this. Unfortunately, again, her part is not written great, um, and I don't think she was necessarily directed the best. But I'll say this. You know, you can tell because the film is very quiet for the most part, minus the music. But I mean, in terms of dialogue, you know, there's not a ton, a ton, a ton of talking. There might be some voiceover. You'll have a little conversation here. But a lot of it is music and movement. And, you know, uh, she, man, even not saying a word, Van Outen could really just sell a moment. And that's that's not to discount... Uh, the the other actors in the film, I think Alstrom as uh, Liesel is really good here as well. The two leads are fantastic. Uh, but Van Outen really, really won me over with that. Now, I do want to say another thing. And this is, I mean, it's a con to me, but I don't really, ex I don't know how to talk about it because I don't know what the intentions behind it were. It feels kind of like financial intentions, but... The film is a, it's from the Czech Republic, so it's a Czech film, okay? The Germans 
the Czechs, every person from every country in the film speaks English. How does that make sense? Now, it's, you know, there are other films that actually pull that off, and that's fine. Uh, you know, and, and I wouldn't really hold the same thing to something like um, Schindler's List, maybe, or something. Whenever there is, when it's an American-made film, and say that all of the Germans in the film speak English, but everyone else speaks another, like, their own native language, I understand that more than when just everyone speaks English. I don't understand what what the, the reasoning behind this was other than maybe trying to make it more accessible to casual moviegoers so they don't have to read subtitles. I don't know, but any reason I come up with sounds super lame. So I'm, again, it didn't bother me overall, but it would just pull me out of it at times because I'm like, wait, 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 I keep forgetting we're in Czechoslovakia right now dealing with Germans. <laughs> uh, so, you know, more of a more of a pet peeve, but it just does, it's a lot of things in the film like that that just kind of don't, makes sense to me. And and these are things that, I mean, man, when you have such beautiful cinematography, such beautiful music, great performances, it's a real bummer when the heart of the film, okay, the heart of the film, which would be the writing, the story, you know, how you're getting us there, when that heart doesn't exist, because that heart has to be there to pump, you know, uh, care and weight throughout the machine, the machine being all of those production elements, the cinematography, the music, the direction, all of those things um, are only brought to life through what the writer, the combination of the writer and the director. And uh, yeah, I I don't, there's just a lot going on with all that stuff that I can't figure out. To wrap this up here, I guess I don't understand what the film is trying to be. It's about the Villa Tuganat. But that part of the story is diluted by the affair between Liesl and Hannah, which is less developed than the glass room the source material is named after. Now, I'm a sucker for beautiful looking and sounding films, definitely. And this one is up there. It's the most beautiful film I've seen this year so far. But I found myself looking at the clock often, seeing how much time was left in the film and feeling overall restless because I didn't really care about anything going on in the film due to a severe and detrimental lack of development. Now, guys, we've heard me talk about this several times this year alone. Where has the development gone? Make sure you develop your movies. Develop your characters. Develop your plot. But this film, The Affair, is an exemplar of how aesthetics can only go so far. And I'm particularly forgiving in this department, as I've said. So, I rated this film 2 out of 5 stars. You can see my ratings on Letterboxd. Just search Austin Glidden. Um, Overall, like I said, the film is absolutely gorgeous to look at. And uh, honestly, it's pretty tolerable because of those production decisions. But uh, the story, storytelling, the writing, I mean, all those aspects that really give the heart that pumps all of the meaning and all of the emotions and all the weight through the film is just lacking here. You can uh, go check it out on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, you can rent it through there. Uh, By all means, give it a shot. And you know what? If you disagree with me, and some people do disagree with me, though I am in the majority, I feel, but uh, hey, If you love it, please like it, 
dislike it, whatever it is, hit me up at Medium Cool Pod uh, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or MediumCoolPod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. I'd love to get your perspective. But for now, I'm going to go meet up with Joe, and we're going to talk to Lou Simone, a female filmmaker. She's a writer, director, and producer. And she had a horror film that came out called Agoraphobia that you can check out on Amazon and several other places, but Amazon is the notable one. Uh, we're going to go talk to her about her life, you know, leading up to being a filmmaker and, uh, you know, what it is like for her being a filmmaker, creating horror films, being a woman in a male-dominated uh, medium, all of the all the fun things. But we're going to go ahead and talk to her, so stay tuned for that. We're going there now. All right, everybody, we're here with Lou Simone. Uh, did I say that correctly, Lou? You did it. Nailed it. All right, we're here with uh, <laughs> with Lou, and she's a filmmaker, uh, director, producer, writer. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about her most recent film here in a moment called Agoraphobia, um, because this has a history that I'm unfamiliar with uh, that I can't wait to talk to you about. Uh, but if you don't mind, Lou, I'd, I'd like to just kind of start before we talk about agoraphobia, you know, how did you get into filmmaking? Because, you know, I read that you grew up in Havana, uh, Cuba, and you kind of moved on to Miami, Florida when you were around nine years old or so. Mm-hmm. How did you go from, you know, kind of being an immigrant, moving to Miami, and then now you're making, you know, horror films and psychological thriller. Like, how do you get from point A to point B? <laughs> Uh, man, it, it was a long road, that's for sure. It definitely was not something that coughed to me as a kid. I, it never, it's not like it was even in my, um, in my dreams at all. It wasn't, it was in my radar. Um, I was a writer since I was a kid. I did start writing for a long time. Um, I must, I'm, I don't know, it must have been like I must have been like 10 when I actually wrote something down on paper. Before that, we would just play very um, crazy games where like we played out like entire stories with my sisters and stuff. But when I was 10, I I actually had to write a story for school. And so I I wrote something and that's when I was like, I kind of like this writing thing Um, and started writing and I've been writing ever since. But, you know, I went to college and got a um, an English degree for um, with you know with they didn't really have a creative writing you know degree at the University of Florida so I just did a general English and just did all the creative writing courses um, and then I mean I didn't know what to do with it like you know you couldn't exactly just go get a job as a writer <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> like, that. yeah. <laughs> So I convinced myself that if I went to law school in, in New York, that, you know, that's like the mecca of publishing. And that's where I was going to be able to like, I was never going to actually have to practice. I was, I was just going to be like, go straight and, you know, into making, um, into writing. Um, but of course that didn't happen because I didn't have time to write while I was in law school. <laughs> yeah. And you wanted to be a novelist, right? Like that was your goal yeah. was to write novels. Right. That's, that's, I mean, I wrote prose. So yeah. yeah. And so then I had, 
uh, student loans to pay back. So I had to practice law for a long time. <laughs> I can so relate to off. you. Your whole story up to this point is like me reliving my past. I mean, because you know, I started <laughs> off studying film history. Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to teach this. And then when I realized I just wasn't in any position to get a Ph.D. at that point, you know, I was in grad school studying film history. And then I'm just like, I'm just going to get a comm degree. I can kind of do anything with that. <laughs> you know, like, like I had to get the practical one, too. But I really wanted to study the arts and like do these things. No, I understand. But then the loans are just murder. You know what I mean? Yeah, Fresh, I mean, NYU is like the most expensive law school in the country, so really, I picked like the wrong one too, you know. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I did that for a long time, and I wrote very slowly on the side. You know, I had I had um, a lot of work, very stressful work that didn't really lead to being feeling very creative. So um, uh, I just when I was helping someone. Um, Someone showed me a script and I thought, God, this is god awful. I can do better than this. And so <laughs> <laughs> it was bad. And so I was like, let me try to let me try to fix it for you. And so um when I was rewriting that script, I was like, wow, this is so much easier than writing, you know, a novel. I mean, I could I can do this so quickly. So I you know, that nothing really happened with that script, but I had like gotten the bug at that point. So I started writing scripts. Um, and then once I started writing scripts and, and I was now I'm doing it constantly and I'm writing and writing and writing really quickly. And I was like, you know, I started submitting it. Um, I went to a few pitch fests and stuff like that. And, you know, it's it, it's so hard to break in to the yeah. industry in any possible way. But you know, writing is just as hard as any as as acting or anything else. Um, and so I had the, you know, had the idea that if maybe we just made one, that that would be the one thing that maybe, you know, people think, oh, my God, she's so talented. Look at you know, this amazing script that, that we didn't pick up. This is going to be it. You know, yeah. the next thing, you know, Universal will be knocking down my door, you know. Um, well, that didn't happen. And this is for um, Hazmat, yeah? No, this is a, another film that I made before that. Oh, okay. Um, it was I was just a writer on that. I ended up kind of co-directing more out of sheer need to keep the story, um, keep the movie coming out as what I intended to write. But I had never even been on a set before, so I didn't do nothing about filmmaking. Sure. Um, but after like helping direct that, um, I kind of was like. Yeah, I can do that too. <laughs> yeah, but before before you move on from there, though, this is interesting. So you started off, you know, being a writer, writing prose, and wanting to be a novelist. Then you went to law school. Before we move forward, though, did did anything in law school or learning, you know, the the I almost said trade, but learning the kind of artistic freedoms of novel, like wanting to be a novelist, all the things you learned in those things, though not directly tied to film, did those things inspire you or influence you directly whenever you started writing films or did it, was it just kind of a 180 for you? In terms of writing, yeah, it was a complete 180. I mean, I, I didn't even do anything remotely in law that was at all related to what I write because I mean, I, I was in real estate. Um, so I wasn't exactly, I wasn't even like trying to be 
uh, an intellectual property attorney or entertainment attorney. Um, so it was a complete, it, it was just a complete different um, life. Um, it has come in handy in producing though, because, you know, I mean, so much what, of what I do when I'm producing on film is, is basically law. I mean, it's, it's still contracts and all that kind of thing. So having that as a background has been incredibly helpful. I'm not really sure how independent filmmakers work without having an in-house attorney because I end up doing so much of that that I, I don't know how everybody else does it. Wow. They probably just don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but no, that's I mean that's the that's the way to be. So tell me this though. So as, so you get through all of that. Now you're working on your first film. I believe now that I have your IMDb pulled up right in front of me, The Awakened was what you were referring mm-hmm. to that you wrote for and you kind of co-directed yeah. out of necessity. But prior to that though, as you were writing scripts, did you like growing up, did you watch a lot of movies or or when you started writing scripts, did you kind of Watch movie was movie watching a part of inspiration or process, or did oh, you kind of just jump into it? I've always watched movies. I've always loved movies. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've been. I never really liked like cartoons and stuff like that growing up. Uh, I grew up watching more. I was the youngest of you know uh, a somewhat large family and. Um, there was a bit of a gap between my, my closest sister and I. So I, so by the time that I was growing up, I was watching movies with my mom alone because mm. she didn't want to watch cartoons. So really I didn't watch cartoons. I watched, you know, adult films. Okay. That sounds like porno. <laughs> <laughs> movies for adults. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, since I was a kid, I didn't really watch kids shows because it was just my mom and I. So I was watching, and it was, this was back in Cuba, so I was watching stuff from the 50s, you know, like entertainment kind of froze there in 1961 along with the cars. So nothing else was allowed, was allowed to be imported. So I was watching like old Hollywood movies from the 50s and before. That uh, rules. When I was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, not I under the, all the good ones. Yeah. It sucks the circumstances, but still, I'm actually in the middle of doing a big marathon of that era of movies right now. So uh, that's exciting. But yeah. So that's interesting, though, that, that you. Yeah. Yeah. So what were some of your favorite films before we move forward on that? Like, what were some of the movies that when you started writing, you might have thought back on and were just like, man, that would be cool to do something like this scene from this movie or. Like, did you have favorite movies that you kind of went back to? I mean, I did, but I didn't go back that far. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I mean, I definitely, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. So there's a lot of um, that in my my writing uh, and my films. Um, but But I also, like, you know, growing up in the 80s, you know, you know, I watched a lot of stuff from the 80s that was like the best of horror, you know, so all the good ones. Um, so I, 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 there's homages to, to all kinds of different eras and, and different kind of films, you know, including, you know, Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you, so you're writing uh, The Awakened, you're helping kind of co-produce it. Where do you go from there? What happens after you get that one? And you're like, man, I should try my hand at this directing thing. 
Yeah, I honestly thought, well, this is crazy. I probably shouldn't do this again. Um, and then it, it, it was like a really, 2012 was just like this horrible year where all these horrible things happened to me. And I ended up, um, I got very sick. So I ended up having to like close down my, my business. I had, I had my own practice. So I closed down my practice uh and then i had to decide what i wanted you know what i wanted to do i eventually got surgery so i was i was in a, you know i was already healthy okay i'm gonna have to restart my practice and in the middle of that when i was recovering from the, from the surgery i watched a marathon of uh scare tactics yeah and uh <laughs> And that's what gave me the idea of the story for hazmat. And, and I thought, okay, well, I could have this, this script I really love. I could one, make it, or two, I could forget about this whole filmmaking thing and just do, you know, and just reopen my practice and, you know, go back to being a lawyer, nice, secure job and stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> paycheck. Well, not paycheck because I was self-employed, but still like, you know, uh, pretty nice pay. And then, uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to make, I'm just going to make one more <laughs> <laughs> and see how that goes. Uh, and, and Hasma was such a big success. It did so well. Um, I mean, it, it was on Redbox, So, you know, we, we made quite a bit of money on it and, um, we went all over the world uh, to film festivals and I, that was it. I was like, there was no way I was ever not going to make films after that. <laughs> but what was that like though, going from essentially a lawyer, writer, now kind of filmmaker, and then you make hazmat and you're like around the world. I mean, what, what kind of shock was that? It had to be some sort of shock. It, it was like, it was the best rush, man. Like the, <laughs> you know, self-actualization at its, at its best, you know, like, you know, I was okay being an attorney. It was very stressful. So I wasn't, I didn't love the job, but I would, I would did very well financially and stuff like that. So in that respect, I had a lot of security. Um, but the rush, the, the feeling of finally doing something you're really passionate about was so incredible that there was no way I was ever going to not do it, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Even, no, though the, I, even though I question that decision all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So so you you do you do hazmat. Uh this thing is uh a success. It does well, it's getting out there, people are watching it. How do you move on to uh and correct me if I get some of these movies backwards? Uh I've had <laughs> I've had infamous problems with IMDB before, but you go <laughs> You go from hazmat and you start working on uh, agoraphobia. Is this correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So, so how did you go from hazmat? You're hitting around the world. You're doing all those things. You know what brought on agoraphobia? What was what was the the uh, beginning of this journey? Well, I mean, I just. Um we had done so well at that point, it was like an easy sell for distributors, I mean, to investors to say, listen, we just did this on a, on a smaller budget. Um, what can we do with a bigger budget and name talent like Tony Todd and Cassie Skirtle, you know, she had just finished doing uh, Sharknado at that point. So, you know, um, 
and she was going to be doing like other, you know, yeah, uh, other. Um, I think she was in part two, but she was definitely in part three and on. Um, and so it it seemed it was it was an easy sell to be honest, you know, at that point. Yeah, and th- and then what happened with it happened, and then that became kind of a. Well, well, that's the next thing, because you say what happened happened, and I want to make sure our listeners understand, because this is the film that we just got to watch um, Mm -hmm. here in 2021 now. As far as Mm -hmm. I am to understand, based on my research, this has never had an official release. You've hit some festivals, and you've, you've hit some in other countries, but we've never had a U.S. release of this. Right. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how this this six year journey? I mean, according to IMDb, you've made other films since then as well. But this, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, how are we only seeing this now? What happened? Well, we finished it in 2015, and we did all the um, all the film festival stuff like that. Um, we were we had signed up before it was even finished. We had signed up with a distributor. And um, we were supposed to be released in 2015. And this was a distributor for North America. And we did a research. We, we had very good feedback from other um, filmmakers who had signed with them. Um, so I thought we covered all our bases. There was an issue within them. I, I honestly will say that I don't think that there was ever a malicious intent in their part. Um, but there was kind of a mess going on where there was a lot of, you know, um, a lot of people were coming in and out of the, um, the company and a lot of stuff was being dropped. And so I asked if I could, you know, if we could just cancel the contract, which we did. And um, they agreed. Very nice of them. You know, um, there were, we understand all your gripes, you know, and we'll, we're going to cancel the contract. They had, in the meantime, they had sub-licensed it to another company who was then going to be do the, doing the release. Uh, it was a bigger company who um, was going to get it a, a bigger distribution, you know, bigger, bigger presence. So it, it seemed like a no-brainer to them. Problem is, somewhere there was a miscommunication between the two companies. So when we canceled with our distributor, it wasn't communicated properly to the other company. Mm. So that company went ahead and released it anyway, even though we had no, at that point we had no valid contract. Um, And so that led us to doing a cease and desist and all that stuff. And while we were still in the middle of negotiating what what was gonna happen at that point, I said, well, let's go ahead and distribute it, you know, correctly because Within three days after it was distributed, it it got pirated. So it was all on all the torrent sites. <laughs> <laughs> the bane of any filmmaker, independent filmmaker's existence, right? <laughs> right. But meanwhile, we haven't had like a proper release. We haven't, you know, done all the publicity to it. At that time, you know, Tony Todd was willing to do um, publicity for it. So uh-huh. it was going to be, you know, it was going to be great. When it didn't get released properly, we lost that, you know, that initial, I don't, I don't know, burst of publicity, you know, like and being able to, to to get eyes on it. And we got eyes on it, just the wrong eyes, the non-paying <laughs> kind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so it's um, obviously at that point, forget Redbox, forget Netflix, forget everything. You know, it's not, it's nobody's going to see it. Um, we were very lucky that meanwhile, I did sell to several other uh, territories around the world. So, I mean, it, it, it did get picked up in the UK, um, Germany, Italy, um, Japan, Russia, um, the Netherlands, like uh, Iceland, all that part over there. Um, yeah, like on a bunch of other places, just not here in the US, you know, North, North America. And so we were um, forever trying to figure something out. In the meanwhile, I got released twice more. Here? It kept, yeah, Amazon kept putting back on. And it was like, <laughs> Amazon, how many times do you have to tell you this is not to be released? Oh so it was on board twice. Um, and it, it just kept going on. We tried to settle out of court. We couldn't. So we ended up having to, to go to court. Um, I can't, I, you know, I can't name the, the companies or the distributor parts that were involved, but we did also sue Google, Amazon and Microsoft. Wow. Um, so it was, it, obviously when you're suing those huge names, it, it became, um, very intricate and it actually helped, you know, it lasted four years yeah. of, it's in federal court, which goes really, really slow. Everything took forever. Uh, they kept getting, you know, being able to delay for one reason or another. And of course they have the money to do that. Yeah. Um, and so finally, 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 we settled out of court um, or in court, but we settled it um, amicably. Um, I want to say November of 2019. So finally got uh, paid what we were supposed to be paid and we could, you know, at that point, but, and then I tried to find uh, another distributor, pick it up and everybody was like, yeah, no, not, not under these conditions. Yeah. So, yeah, right. so <laughs> we ended up having to do it ourselves. But, but if, if I may ask though, where, where do you stand in 2021 now? Or is it still kind of in that limbo where it's like, I just, we don't know how to get this out there. No, no, it's out there now. It just got released now in February. It's it's on uh, it's on Amazon and it's going to be out on Tubi. Um, I don't know any time now. I, I haven't been given a date, but it's they picked it up as well. Fantastic. Okay, great, great, great. Because that was my next <laughs> question. Because I actually didn't know it had released yet. So that's that's good. Um, so you know, <laughs> that's so wild. Okay, so <laughs> in, in the mean, like while you're fighting this fight with all these, you know, major, you know billion dollar companies basically you know <laughs> you you go on to make two other films that were at least released uh all girls weekend and three what was your relationship with these how did this how did you move forward with with these after agoraphobia well by that point um hazmat had made its money back and then some and um i had really good investors the original investors were people i knew really well and they never really did it with the expectation of, you know, of making money off of it. So they were like, you know, just keep just rolling into the next movie. And so that's what we use to fund these two movies. Um, um, and it's, you know, I mean, like, I just, I just keep going. Um, it, it's something at this point, I, I, I equated to being in an abusive relationship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> where I really should leave him, but I can't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because because honestly, I mean, after what happened with agoraphobia, you really would have thought that I really would be like, okay, that's it. You know, I did everything I could possibly do to make this work. And look how badly it turned out. So, I mean, let's just not do this again. And yeah. You know, you know I made three three movies. There's another one we just finished last year or so. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I... I feel you there. I, I've been in several aspects of the arts, you know, with music, as a musician, whatever. If anything like that happened, like, I just can't imagine, like, another medium doing that either. Like, a musician who has to sit on a record for six years because, you know, there are, like, legal complications. I just can't imagine it. So um, I want to come back to uh, agoraphobia, though, now that we're kind of caught up here. And I'm going to give Joe a, a chance here to talk in a second. Um, but, uh, before that, so you're just gonna have to wait, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's the Austin show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we all know that, but anyways, uh, no, th this, this, uh, what was it like working with Tony Todd? I mean, you know, working with the Candyman must have been exciting. You know, I mean, I'm sure that's like one of the major names people, kind of pick out of the uh, cast what was it like working with him and the cast in general oh my god he was so good I was really nervous um when he was coming in because you know obviously I had never worked with like a named actor before especially one that I was such a big fan of you know I thought I was gonna like geek out in front of him <laughs> so how do you do that and still have respect you know like have them respect you as a director um but he was he was so nice and so low maintenance honestly like uh, i really was we were so concerned since we were shooting in a house like where he where he could be and where he was going to be comfortable um and first of all like the list of requirements you know was, was not like i need white flowers and you know distilled water and this of this specific brand that only comes from the alps in france you know like oh, yeah. no it was like he was super cool about it super chill um just the nicest guy came completely prepared um we had him um for one day but he's in four scenes which is a lot yeah and yet he was he was really good about doing it. It wasn't like he was like, how oh, you expect me to remember all these lines and do them all in one day? No, not at all. <laughs> like he understands um, what indie filmmakers go through. You know, like he's not trying, he, you know, he's not there to be a diva. So sure. he was super helpful. I loved working with him. He's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, Joe, I'm going to, I'm, I'm just going to force you in here now, bud. <laughs> yeah. You know, take, little, take your, take your time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, the, you know, the, um, so, so Lou, I, you know, you and I did an interview for hazmat years ago. It was funny. I just actually went back and, and read it and we reference agoraphobia. You talk about agoraphobia briefly in, in our interview. Um, but, um, you know, but between, between hazmat and, and this film, one thing I, I kind of noticed about your movies is that, you know, a lot of people equate horror and exploitation as kind of the same thing. And, and something that, that really stuck out to me was you have a couple of scenes uh, with, you know, with, with the, with your lead uh, where in, let me just say in other movies, 
there would be nudity. There's a bathtub scene with her where she's taking a bath. And then there's a scene with her in bed with, with her husband. And I was just like, ah, well, you know, here comes the new, oh no, there's no nudity here. And in the bathtub scene, especially is one that you, you're just, you're driving the plot, you know, instead of, you're not like, oh wait, let's stop. And and here's some boobs. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, no, here's, here's, here's an important part of the film. And we just go through, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, as you know as a choice that you're you know you're you're not necessarily out here to to be exploitation you're here to you know make a scary movie yeah i'm glad you noticed um yeah i i mean as 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 a woman i know i'm bothered by these and i love horror don't get me wrong but i it, it bothers me when i don't know where there's you know the gratuitous Honorary. like you know like i don't know if you're having a sex scene and people are fully dressed is weird but i mean just like random a girl's walking through the you know the forest and the and the shirt just happens to get caught in a tree and and you know rips it off of her i mean that's where i get really bothered yeah. um so i've made a decision and i i really have stuck through it in every film that i've made um, to not have female nudity. I feel like there's enough of that uh, out there. In all honesty, like if, if stuff is, if there's too much nudity or, um, I may, this is going to sound like I'm a prude, but like it really takes me out of the story mm-hmm. because I'm too cut up on thinking of like, I wonder how much that actor got paid for that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like it really, like even shows like Game of Thrones, uh, yeah, Game of Thrones and Rome and all that stuff. I think Rome was the first one to do it. I'd be like, okay, enough. Like I don't need to see that many people having sex. Like <laughs> it's, it's like a little crazy for me. Um, so I don't think it adds anything to the story for the most part. Uh, I think it detracts from from watching it because I mean, unless you're looking for that, um, it really does take you out of the story because you can't help but be like, oh my god, I'm what am I watching, you know? Um, and honestly, I feel like as a, as a female filmmaker, I need to work against that. And in fact, I have men shirtless and the women will be fully clothed and you will see that in all my movies. <laughs> <laughs> the guys will be shirtless for no reason. <laughs> and, and, and the women will be fully clothed. Uh, the only exception to that is in three because in three and I for an I um, in the U.S. as they retitled retitled it, um, there's there's a reason why she showed her breasts. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you you have to watch and and see that scene. But like it's a scene that is so not sexual at all yeah. um, that it, it it's gonna shock you not because of the boob not because of the boobs but what's happening because of the boobs, you know? Yeah. So it, it's, it's supposed to be very not sexual. Um, but the, the funny thing is though, that while I would feel really weird telling uh, an actress, Hey, do you mind doing something topless? Uh, I, you know, with them, with men, they actually want to take off their shirts because those actors want to show off their bodies in what good shape they're in. So it's a very <laughs> different dynamic at all. Like, in this last one that we filmed last last year, I, I said to the guy, I was like, I mean, you're getting ready, for, you know, you just you're you just had a 
dressed in a hotel, so you're, you know, you just came out of the shower, maybe you could like be putting on your shirt. He's like, no, no, I, you know, I'd be in a, I'd be in a towel. I was like, okay, that's your choice. (laughs) (laughs) Very different dynamic completely. And I mean, that's, that's kind of the perk of being the writer too, right? Is there, it's kind of, it started as a trope in the seventies and eighties with like, you know, sex is this trope. It's become a cliche at this point. You don't need Mm -hmm. it in everything. Sometimes when you write things like you were saying about three, like sometimes it can make sense in the context of the story and it doesn't have to even be sexualized. Um, But that's kind of the perk of being the writer though, isn't it? Because you don't have to write that in. That's just something that can just be gone. True. But obviously, you know, the director has a lot of choice in that because I mean, how you, what frame you use really you know, two people could be naked in bed and yet the way that she's turned or where the, you know, the, the frame of the camera where you just see her from the shoulder up, you could you could make a choice of directly. You're not going to have nudity sure. regardless of how it's written. No, that's fair. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of the story, how you arrived at, the, at making Agoraphobia? Um, I actually read something that that you based it on some some of your own experiences, some of your own kind of personal fears. Is, is that is that true? Um, yeah, actually, but, uh, it was, that was actually more background, um, research really. Um, the idea came about, I was visiting the Florida Keys, um, and I was driving back and they're just, I mean, if you've ever been down there, it's just beautiful. And there's gorgeous houses right on the water. And I thought, you know, these lucky people, I mean, they're super expensive. They're like lucky people can afford to live down here. And I thought, wouldn't it be wouldn't it suck if you actually lived down here but couldn't actually leave your place? So it that just started like my brain thinking about that. Um, and you know what else? What other reason would you not be able to leave your house besides agoraphobia, right? Mm-hmm. So um, just started doing that and doing the research on the actual illness and how it's treated. It um, it reminded it it brought me back to. Uh, a virtual reality therapy that I had when I was, when I developed a fear of flying. Flying? Did I say that right? Flying. Not frying. Although I hate to cook too. So. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I developed a really bad uh, uh, fear of flying after 9-11 and I stopped flying altogether. And so um, I found this virtual reality therapy where they literally, you know, it's it's a kind of exposure therapy where they actually put like goggles on, you know, the, the VR goggles, yeah. you know, the, the um, headphones. They sit you on a seat that actually moves and then they simulate take, takeoffs and, and landings and, and turbulence, stuff like that over and over again. And meanwhile, they have you like, you know, with sensors, stuff like that, to monitor your heartbeat, your, you know, your breathing, all that stuff. And then the therapist helps you, you know, they'll talk into a microphone and tell you, okay, you're, you're getting excited, relax, remember your breathing, that kind of thing. So I did that. I did like five or six sessions of that. It it wasn't cheap (laughs) and eventually was able to fly again. But yeah, like the whole idea of how you, um, how you treat somebody with agoraphobia or, or a lot of phobias actually is exposure therapy. And that's something that Faye, who is the 
the main character in the film um, is going through. That's what she's trying to do. She's, she figures if she moves into this house and the keys, um, she'll be able to slowly but surely, you know, expose herself to the outside and eventually be able to beat the deceased. Sure. And it, that's, it was a, a clever move, something I, I do occasionally I'll do a workshop for like a, a class or something. I, I just did one recently. And one of the things I was uh, mentioning is as film students, when I was in studying film, a lot of the production students, I was not one of them, but one of the, a lot of the production students wanted to make the matrix, you know, as an undergrad, like, you know, they're trying to make these, like, they want to do these big things. And I was always like, just do something within your means and do it great. Right. And I saw in an interview that you did, you were saying this, you were saying something similar where you were like, yeah, just like write minimal characters, minimal locations and just write a good script. Right. And the thing that I noticed very quickly, just because in part I was looking for watching Agoraphobia is you filmed this in one house. It looked like (laughs) and you had, you know, occasionally you'd have maybe five or six people in a room, but usually it was just two, maybe three. Um And I noticed that you were basically exercising that thing. You know, I, obviously that was a conscious choice, but what were the maybe setbacks? Can you talk about any uh, struggles that might have come from that choice? Because a lot of people don't like working in real houses either because you're kind of restricted to the rooms and the layout of the house. But uh, by choose, making these choices, which were, I'm sure, for budgetary reasons and just independent mm-hmm. filmmaking in general, uh, like how, how did that work for you? I mean, to me, I, that has been my experience with all my scripts, all my films so far. You know, I, I since we're we're limited by budget, I I try to use, I try to spend the budget and better in other things that is not about you know getting more locations or getting more actors because I I feel like a good story doesn't need all that, um, so I, I tend to make more character-driven um, stories. Um, and and for the budget, that's all, the only thing you can do. I think, you know, when you try to do too much with little is where you're going to run into a lot of trouble. Um, I mean, obviously, it, it's a hassle sometimes to film in one, in, in, you know, in, a, in something that's not a studio. So you're not, you can't just move a wall. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's also incredibly convenient. I mean, it's incredibly inconvenient to be able to just, you know, okay, wrap for the day, you leave the cameras where they are and, you know, come back the next day and, and what have you. This house was a little bit, this was the only time we actually shot on a, on a place where the actual owner still was staying there. Um, and so that caused some um, inconveniences because you know, we couldn't be as careless as we normally would be. And not that we would be careless, but like, you know, we really did have to like make sure that the house looked okay, before, you know, when we left for the day and we had, we couldn't just leave a mess around. Sure. Or we couldn't just drop stuff exactly where we left off and just picked up the next day. Um, so in that way, it was, it was a, a bit inconvenient, but, um, you know, there are not many vacant, nice homes <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so and we needed to be furnished and stuff like that like furnish, you know furnishing and 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 setting up um a house can be very pricey and that can sure. cut into your budget big time yeah. how how did you um get this house where, where did you find it it was a friend it was somebody i knew mm-hmm. 
Um, and so we worked out a deal um, to use the house for, I think it was 14 days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, that's always kind of a challenge for, you know, when you're, when you're working independently, right? A, a big production can afford sets or, you know, can go, you know, build something, but, you know, when, when you're, when you're kind of, you know, you're, you're under that radar, you know, you're, you kind of have to find something to make it work. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, how... and it, it definitely, especially when you're trying to have a nice house, you know, it's supposed to be like a really nice house in the case, you know? So, I mean, we also shot, uh, you know, hazmat, you know, in one location, but it was a, a abandoned place. So literally we could do anything to it and nobody cared. Like we totally <laughs> yeah. destroyed that place, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's obviously better. Or even where we shot three, that was, it was a very pretty house, but it was not very well taken care of. And so, I mean, we definitely took care of it, but we definitely, we didn't have to feel like, oh my God, well, don't touch this, don't touch that. You know, we, we sure. could, have more freedom and, and knowing that if we did break something, it wasn't going to cost us an arm and a leg to, to re replace, you know? Yeah. And three was just literally three people in one location, mm -hmm. right? So that was, that was even simpler probably. <laughs> yeah. Three people in one location for three days. So it was three days of wardrobe as well. That was, that's another way to, you know, save money. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. Go for it, Joe. Well, let's let's keep talking about being an independent filmmaker. <laughs> um, just kind of more general things. Um, how how do you do things like score funding or, you know, I mean, essentially all these things that you just you have to do if you want to make a movie. You know how how do you, you know, when you don't have a, the backing of of, you know, a glamorous studio system that will just you know drop money in your lap. How, how do you manage to get that done? Uh, you know, and I've, I've heard of, you know, of course there's, you know, famous stories like Kevin Smith, you know, max out credit cards and all this stuff. And, you know, you hear different stories like that, but what what is your process for, for getting something like that done? Well, um, hazmat was primarily um, just friends that I knew um, like close friends and so on that I, you know, the budget was relatively low. Um, so, it was easy to have have my friends who who I'd known for all my life or for a big chunk of my of my life um, support that. That one really funded two other films, um, so I didn't really have to worry about going back for investors for um, old, the Old Girls Weekend or or three for where I did have to find new investors was in agoraphobia. And there, honestly, we, I tapped into professional um, relationships, people mm. I knew. Um, and that's where being an attorney actually helped again. <laughs> <laughs> um, just invest, you know, just um, people who knew me professionally and knew that I, that I had, I don't know, the maturity, I guess, to, to, that I would go to bat for it no matter what I had to do. And I think I, four years of litigation and seriously going through some incredible personal stress to fight three of the biggest companies in the world <laughs> proves that, you know, <laughs> they were right yeah. in trusting me. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a story. So, uh, 
so uh, the the thing we talked about, one thing we talked about last time was kind of the state of of women, which we, and we've touched on it here, women filmmakers. And at the time, uh, this was what seven years ago or so, eight years ago, um, when we talked, it, it was a big, it was a big hot button issue that there were just not that many women that were getting jobs, and you know, especially in, in the big time, you know, in big time filmmaking. And you know, you you talked about in in the genre there were quite a few, and now it, that's that seems to be shifting, right? There's a lot more in terms of kind of high profile female filmmakers. What? How do you see kind of the state of that today as opposed to back then? I mean, it's definitely a little bit better. I don't think it's been huge strides. So you know, I mean, think about it. Even oh, seven years ago, and it was only just this week that the second woman ever in 78 years of, you know, the Golden Globes wins the best director. Yep. And I'm, there's been a lot of stuff that's been directed by women the last seven years and never even got nominated. Right. Um, so it's still, it's very slow going. I mean, the numbers are still horrible. Um, the studio system, I forgot one movie I, I saw recently, uh, you know, like the announcement being made that the VFX director for the previous movie was going to be directing the next one. And it was a, some big budget thing. Like it, it was either a Marvel thing or something like that. And and yes, a VFX director is a very capable person, but really you go from never having directed before to, to directing that. Yeah. There's lines of women waiting to, for an opportunity to direct a big studio feature. And, you know, you pick a guy who has no directing experience whatsoever just because he did VFX. Yeah. Uh, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not, it's not getting much better. Yeah. Yeah. We, we need, we need to do better. Continue doing better, please. Uh, yeah, mar- yeah. Marginal strides are not good enough <laughs> anymore. Um, uh, and, and that's, it's, I don't know. There, there's kind of this culture shift now where we're, and it's it's not not just in filmmaking and in all aspects of life where we're trying to. It seems like we're we're at least a contingent of us are trying to make strides and and try to level that out. And there's still that there's still that resistance. And there's you know there's still this. Well, why do we have to do this? And it, it's it's something that strikes me you know as as important because you know and and you've been even an advocate late. Um, uh, more recently uh, for not only women filmmakers, but Latina filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about, you know, the, the representation there and how important that is. These are, these are different perspectives, right? We're, we're watching when, when we watch, you know, a, a woman make a horror movie, a lot of times there's a slightly different perspective than when a man makes it. And that that's an important thing for, for storytelling, right? Beyond even just, Hey, does this movie scare me? some of the, the nuances can be a little bit different. Can, can you talk about kind of, uh, you know, kind of that in terms of Latina filmmakers and, and you're advocating for them, obviously, you, you know, you're in that particular group, but um, you know, kind of how, what, you know, what, what that representation means and what it can mean to the future of filmmaking. I mean, I can't really say that my films and I, are representative of Latinos overall. It's not like I have a ton of Latino uh, characters or I make stories that um, that are, 
ident- you know, they're only a person from Latino descent is going to identify with. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to be very commercial as a filmmaker because I need my films to make money so I can make another film. So I need it to be something that's universal. And I'm talking about beyond the United States. You have to think about what's going to sell worldwide mm-hmm. um, because otherwise you can't make money. Yeah. Um, so where I think it's, it's important is that imagine a world where you work your butt off and you, and you do everything right. And just because you don't look the right way, whether it's because you're a woman or because you're a minority, you can't, you're not allowed to practice what you love mm-hmm. and you have to work. You know, I think if, there are a lot of people out there who have not made six feature films at this point I have made who are given opportunities, you know, and I mean, what else is going to take? What I am? How many, how many films do I have to make to show that I know how to make a film mm-hmm. and I do them with no budgets, like very low budgets and they look good and have good stories yeah. uh, and people like them. So it's, it is exhausting. It's exhausting to have to try to work harder to get any recognition than somebody, you know, just because he has the right contacts because he's male and, you know, he can go use the bathroom next to the stall next to the other guy, you know, um, and I'm not allowed in there. But um, I, I think there's just a sense of fairness. Um, I'm not trying to... And I don't think most of us, I mean, there's some women who make very um, female empowered films and stuff like that. And, you know, that's great for them. I'm not criticizing them, but that's not really what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to make commercial films that are, that, that ring true to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it's still not enough, you know? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so a few months back, I, I ran into you on social media and you were asking for dating stories. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and I am a, I'm relatively newly single. I've been single now for about a year after being married for a long time. And so I jumped at that chance because I had been involved in, in online dating. And so my, my, my question there is, are you making a horror movie about online dating or are you, are you shifting genres a little bit? Or is that something that you're Are you continuing to pursue that? Or was that just like a, a, a an idea an exercise where that kind of didn't go anywhere? No, no, it, it is going actually that my actual movie, the one thing that helps me break through is the irony of life, right? I'm here trying to make, you know, horror movies and I love them and that's what I would prefer to do. Uh-huh. Um, but I had an idea for a unromantic comedy um, and, um, and I thought it'd be hilarious. Um, and that's where I asked that question. I had the best answers, you know, I'm always, and I'm always asking those questions about, you know, I'm also single. So it's, there's always like, I love to hear other people's point of view. Um, and, um, and I just thought this would be really, really funny. And so I asked the question, I used it to write a, uh, a feature, but then it got optioned and they asked me to turn it into a show. Oh. And so now it's an eight episode um, TV show, a dramedy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's being pitched to some really cool places. So holding my breath that that one of those places picks it up because, uh, you know, at this point now it's, now I'm invested, you know, even <laughs> though I wrote at the time mostly just to make, just to make light of the situation of how hard dating is. Yeah. Uh, and and now it's because ironically it might be the one thing that makes me break into the bigger <laughs> studio system. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Maybe I get like a special thanks or something in the future. Oh my gosh. Always fishing for compliments and, and gratitude, Every this guy. Every oh man, I'm gosh. I just want some attention. I don't care. <laughs> oh but my I gosh. Been, I have to say that I have been um I want to say the last two years I've been trying to like flex my my writing muscles and trying to write different genres just to just to see how I do and um and I've written like now I've written like three comedies um and um an action film um I feel like I've done one in that drama you know so I've, I've tried my hand at different things just just to see how I do them you know yeah yeah that's, yeah. that's exciting news though it's hopefully that that pans out and and uh uh can you know get you maybe, maybe you know you'll fund the next half a dozen horror movies after that right <laughs> yeah i mean it's it is tough you know i have i have several friends who have went to get their mfas in screenwriting or in some sort of filmmaking and you know, uh, one of my buddies, you know, he always liked to write kind of genre pictures. So like Westerns or, you know, like like horror movies, but not the kind of commercial horror movie. It'd be some other kind of like weird, like subgenre of horror. And that was always his thing. And that is just not the most sought after commercial thing. Right. So he did what you're talking about, trying to flex his muscles. And he has an agent and stuff, but it's still feast and famine. I mean, it's it sounds so hard. You know, he went to AFI. And uh, his friends just made Palm Springs. I don't know if I ever told you that, Joe, but he was friends with the the filmmakers of Palm Springs, and they all graduated together. And it's like, man, they make Palm Springs. He's over here <laughs> working some dead-end job trying to write a script that would just get picked up. You know what I mean? Um, it's It sounds tough, but, you know, like Joe said, I really hope that uh, that this works out for you. And, um, and Joe, unless you have another question, I'm going to kind of wrap this up. Are you good? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, well, Lou, is there anything else that you would like to kind of end this conversation with anything about your films, send people to go see something, um, any kind of, do you need more ideas about single folks? Because if I had to guess our, our listeners, I bet half of them would be able to contribute. Just kidding. Listeners. Anyways, um, you want to leave us with anything, Lou? Uh, well, let's see. Well, Agoraphobia is not available, so they definitely need to watch that. Um, it's available. It's on Amazon. Um, it's on the Roku app, uh, Harbinch, and it's going to be out on Tubi TV in the next month or so. So they de- definitely need to watch that. All my films are also on Amazon and Tubi. Um, so Hazmat, All Girls Weekend. And I have a third one. Uh, oh, three and I, four and I are all available. Um, and then I'm just finishing uh, 73 minutes. So that should be available soon. And that's it. Awesome. Uh, Lou, thank you so much for, for being here and, and talking with us. And, uh, you know, listeners, everybody knows how to see her movies now. So feel free to go check them out. Lou, thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks guys. So 
Well, that was an absolute pleasure speaking with Lou. She's she's really sweet, like I said. A really fun person to kind of talk to. And always fun to hang out with Joe. And, uh, yeah, the affair. I thought it was not great. But, uh, like I said, if you're really into pretty pictures that move across your eyeballs and really nice sounds and you don't like the plot if it's not great or the writing's not great you just like looking at pretty things man that might be your favorite film of the year because it's real pretty to look and listen to but uh or look at and listen to doesn't matter the point is uh hey this was a show we did the thing and you know we still kept it under 90 minutes that was my goal the new year's resolution i'm getting there guys all right just help me out here. I'm, I'm trying. Um, anyways, you know, go follow us on social media, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please go hang out. Ask us questions. Tell us if you agree or disagree about stuff that we talk about. We just love hearing from you. Also, go, uh, you know, as the, the, the kids say, smash that subscribe button or whatever. I don't know. Or follow us wherever you're listening to this. Please do that. And hey, if you even feel so inclined... Please leave us a rating, maybe even a review. Can you believe it? We give you reviews, you could give us one, you know, that kind of a thing. Anyways, it really helps us out, these kind of trivial, shameless self-promotion moments. Uh, sorry, but we really could use the help. Appreciate it very much. Um, yeah, so we have a lot coming up, going on this month. We have a lot coming up, so hopefully you guys will hang with us. And uh, hopefully you're excited to hear more. Thank you so much for listening. And for now, I'm going to go ahead and just sign off. I just want you guys to know that we love you. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. Take it easy.